Hello and welcome to Heart in Art, the podcast that connects people through creativity. I'm your host, Danny Vanderbrook, a UK-based fiction writer and freelance journalist. I'm excited to be here and share the many enthusiastic voices of the international art scene. Each week, we deal with a philosophical question related to the arts and explore the thoughts of our guests in relation to their own craft. In our October 2020 episode, I speak with US-based editor of the Lonely Bannet Travel Guide, Megan O'Day. In a year that's turned travel upon its head, what is it like to be a travel writer? So today I'd like to say hello to the commercial content editor at The Lonely Planet, Megan O'Day. Welcome. It's really nice to have you on the show. Yes. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, no worries. So today we're talking about the great outdoors with travel writing as a focus. So we're thinking about the fact that, well, this is a year that travel has been completely turned upon its head. So, you know, what is it like to be a travel writer? So you've written many forms, Megan, not just travel writing. Um, So how did you come into your current role then for The Lonely Planet? Well, like uh, most good things in my life, I I fell into this a little ass backwards. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, I've done a lot of different kinds of writing in my career. Um, When I first got started, I was writing um, instructional instructional manuals for how to manufacture um, asphalt using heavy industrial equipment. That's Um, fun. (laughs) <laughs> so if, uh, if the writing ever falls through, um, you'll see me paving uh, on the side of the road because I still think I remember how to run the um, asphalt manufacturing equipment. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, I've written website copy for dentists and plumbing companies. And, um, you know, eventually I worked my way into more journalism and personal essay. You know, I spent a while editing for Fortune magazine and then eventually started working for Uproxx and I was just writing quick news hits, but they gave me a big break uh, when they asked me a point blank if I could fly to Phoenix, Arizona on basically 24 hours notice to cover a Chance the Rapper concert. And I had never been asked to do such a thing. It took about an hour for it to sink in that this was a legitimate request. And I was adjunct teaching at the time. I was teaching um, freshman comp. at my local university and so I rearranged my whole class schedule I got somebody to sub for me and 24 hours later I was on a plane to Phoenix Arizona and realized that I wasn't just covering a Chance the Rapper concert I was covering the Lost Lake Music Festival and unfortunately it was the only year that that festival got put on but it was a lot of fun Run the Jewels was playing um, there were the Pixies and so I ended up getting to do this sort of crash course in you know, music writing and travel writing. And it really opened up all sorts of doors. They uh, gave me some more assignments. I ended up going to Jamaica for Uproxx. And so even though I hadn't been doing any travel writing previously, I got this big break and finally got to test out this genre that I'd always been really interested in. And that started giving me the kind of clips I needed to get more uh, travel writing assignments. And I ended up getting a full-time job in Portland uh, writing about more outdoors topics and specifically about camping. And when that uh, turned into uh, sort of a toxic work environment, something that I no longer wanted to be involved with, started looking for another job. And um, it just so happened that Lonely Planet was hiring. And somehow I convinced them that I was the person they needed. <laughs> 
It's fun because, I mean, when people think about writing and wanting to be a writer, you know, that that call that you got and, you know, this current role is what people think about, isn't it? But they don't see all of that that goes on to get to those kind of roles, which is a lot of hard work, I imagine. It, it is. And it's, you know, it, it's a lot of luck and it's a lot of privilege. But I think it's also a matter of sort of keeping your eye on the prize and having this internal compass that says, these are the things I enjoy thinking about. These are the things that the ideas that I enjoy engaging with. These are the kinds of stories I want to tell. And even if you're not getting to do that, uh, you know, objectively on the page, if you're uh, having to write copy about um, dental websites or orthodontic procedures, to know that what you're really interested in is telling human stories and what it's like to be a human being in that place at that time. Um, it might not ever show up on uh, in the finished copy, but it can kind of direct the projects you want to take on. Yeah, I like that, the idea of the human story. And that's what all good stories focus on, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and just what, sort of what's at the heart of things. Yeah. So what do you think makes um, good travel writing? as opposed to mediocre travel writing? Well, that's, uh, that's a question that I, I was literally thinking about in my sleep last night, uh, anticipating our conversation this morning. And I, you know, it's such a complicated answer, especially right now that more people are opening themselves up to conversations about intersectionality and uh, who has a voice and, and who really gets to um, have a sense of ownership about places in uh, discourse and in travel writing. And I think, you know, obviously there's some really beautiful travel writing that, that I grew up on and definitely contributed to me wanting to, to be in the line of work that I'm in. You know, I'm thinking specifically of, you know, Lawrence Vanderpost, and he wrote these really beautiful novels um, based on his childhood in, in what was then Rhodesia. And um, his prose was absolutely lovely, and he had this really remarkable way of making you feel like you were there, um, you know, with him in, in his childhood. But it was, even though it was fiction and not pure travelogue, yeah. um, his descriptions of the African bush and the Kalahari Desert um, were really inspirational. There was also a lot of problematic stuff in there um, where he was doing... Um, sort of, you know, magical Negro tropes and um, yeah. some really problematic stuff about the political situation at the time and, and, and centering a, a white male perspective. And so he used to be considered um, good travel writing. Yeah. And we've since come to realize that there were a lot of faults in what he did. And now we're starting to have more conversations about, you know, parachute um, travel writing where, you know, for example, it was um, Harper's, I believe, flew this writer into uh, Kenosha, Michigan to write about the uh, political situation leading up to the election. And yep. it was maybe a, it was maybe 12 days before um, the uh, the police killing in Kenosha that erupted into protests that I saw this piece and he admitted in the first few paragraphs that before he received this assignment, he'd never even heard of Kenosha. And wow. 12 days later, everyone had heard of Kenosha um, because of the protests. And I had kind of scoffed at 
the notion that, that he would so openly admit parachuting in for this story when there's people who have lived there all their lives who could have maybe more effectively or intimately um, conveyed the political situation there. Um, but it was also instructive in that, you know, 12 days later, people who had never heard of Kenosha were suddenly very aware of it. And he was kind of everybody, um, that fish out of water being like, wait, I've never even heard of this place. And now I'm trying to get caught up to speed. Um, so I think we're having a lot of good conversations about, um, you know, the pros and cons of being familiar, more or less familiar with a place. Um, when you're, when you're setting out to write about it, I think we're, you know, having more nuanced conversations about, um, how we play portray places as exotic um, or consider ourselves to be the thing that's exotic and out of context. Um, yeah. You know, people started talking about that more after Eat, Pray, Love came out. And now um, I'm really heartened to see more travel publications reaching out to writers of color um, or writers who have, um, you know, uh, a more personal long-term connection to a place. Um, I saw on Twitter recently this um, great writer based in Atlanta, um, Neki Okon. She writes some really lovely things about food. And she said on Twitter that she was so tired of seeing food stories um, only being written by Americans from an American perspective and not really celebrating um, restaurants and cuisine on an international level. And, you know, I said, to myself that she was completely right. And I immediately turned around and I'm like, I'm going to commission a story from you. Like, tell me about what meals you miss. We're in a pandemic. We're not getting to travel. And I know I'm thinking about all the restaurants I'd love to be able to get back to. And yeah. so she had this really gorgeous piece about, you know, these four meals she had in four different countries. And um, I think people are starting to realize that good travel writing um, is about a diversity of perspectives and it's not just beautiful prose um, about beautiful places but it's about this broader sense of, of who gets to tell those stories and where they're coming from. No it's something that you know I, I've written about myself and in, in being somebody who has spent the last 10 years outside of my country of origin um, more and more of my experiences have been outside of the, my country of origin. And there are so many places that I would like to write about. Um, however, it, it always seems to me that when I put pen to paper, there's this battle between not wanting to reproduce all of these kind of colonial tropes that you've talked about, like aestheticization and, um, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think um, it's, it's an interesting point that you make about um, the diversity of voices that we hear who actually um, tell those stories are important. Um, and I think it's really crucial, too, that, that as we diversify travel writing, we remember that it doesn't always have to even center um, the diverse identities of the writers themselves. I think, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum from, you know, Lawrence Vanderpost, who had this very white male colonial mindset, he, um, th- th- he couldn't help but bring to his writing. At sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, I think truly great travel writing is um, by Jan Morris, who was also a white male colonial travel writer, 
um, and then came out as a white female uh, travel writer. And, you know, that just knocked everybody's socks off um, when James Morris became Jan Morris. And, um, but what Morris did was she wrote Last Letters from Hav. And it's this really remarkable piece of travel writing in that it's not even about a real place. It, there's no Hav, there's no country um, on the map called Hav. And it's this amalgamation um, and fictionalization of a lot of Middle Eastern countries um, or places like Turkey that are sort of, you know, in between um, Europe and the Middle East. And she wanted to write about the things she saw happening um, in the Middle East at the time that she was sort of at the peak of her travel writing career and wasn't able to say because of the, the rules and conventions of straight travel writing at the time um, and even today. But by fictionalizing it, she was really able to capture the essence of a place and these sort of um, concerning trends that she saw occurring. And I think that she was able to do this really beautiful, um, compelling and, and, and sort of frightening blend of um, so many places and, and to exist in this liminal place on the page um, because of who she is as a person. Um, even though she never centers herself, even though she never says um, that, that she is the narrator. Yeah. Um, but who she is as a person and, and her huge wealth of experience made this really remarkable text possible. And in a lot of ways, it's truer than straight, um, you know, travelogue about visiting Iran or, yeah. or Iraq. Because the the um, the quality of the truths that it explores are very different in nature. Um, yeah, I think um, you know one thing um, that I noticed about your writing is um, you like to write and you commission pieces on intersectionality and place. So um, for those of, of you listening, there's um, gushing geezers, dramatic canyons, and militant feminism is one of your pieces. And there's another piece on the hiker, Daniel White and the Appalachian Trail. So um, could you just comment on anything that you discovered then? I mean, you've touched on it already, but about the interrelationship between identity and place or the way people relate to the outdoors, different groups of people. I think that's a, a good connection to what you were saying about Jan Morris and her um, depiction. Yeah. So um, with the, the Gushing Geysers um, piece that I wrote for Playboy, um, sort of this became sort of my, my journalistic hobby horse. I went on a press trip to Wyoming a couple years ago. And at the time, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I didn't really have a conception of Wyoming besides, you know, some oil money and cowboys and, and probably like a lot of conservative ranchers. And so I was really surprised that the state has this big feminist history. It's called the Equality State because mm -hmm. it was the first territory in the United States to give women um, the right to vote. And Esther Morris was the first woman to hold public office in the United States um, and was the first female justice of the peace, um, you know, in the world. And what I found so compelling on this press trip is they took us to this little tiny mining town where, um, where Esther Morris lived and where she did this historic thing. And it's a really desolate place. It's gray, it's rocky. The cabin that um, she was living in with her 
abusive drunk of a husband and, and adult sons, you know, it's probably the size of the bedroom I'm sitting in right now. Wow. And, you know, you can, you can read about um, Esther Morris's story on the page. You can read the facts about her in, in you know, the Wyoming history books. But until you see the conditions she was living in and the kind of place that, that she found herself, that geography adds so much to her story and really paints a picture of the kind of person she was to take this on, um, the sort of conditions that women were up against at the time. And, you know, the feminist figures that you often hear talked about, like Susan Anthony or, or even Alice Paul, were these well-to-do college-educated women who picked the task of suffrage for themselves. And Esther Morris was the complete opposite. She was not well-educated. Um, she sort of had this um, role thrust upon her. She didn't even think of herself necessarily as a feminist. Um, and these things really stand out when you see um, South Pass City, Wyoming. And I really wanted to weave the geography into this description um, and invite people to go see this place for themselves because I think it it's hard to take in the gravity of what um, Esther Morris accomplished unless you're intimately acquainted with the Wyoming landscape. Um, so, but, you know, the flip side is, you know, Esther Morris was clearly a fish out of water. She's not from Wyoming originally. Um, and she sort of made the best she could with a, a sort of rotten set of circumstances. And, you know, the flip side, the other story that you mentioned um, about the uh, Black Alachian uh, is his trail name. <laughs> and, um, you know, he grew up in North Carolina, um, like a lot of rural folks in the South, the American South. Um, you know, you might think that because you grew up in the country, you have access to all these great outdoor spaces. And that's just not true. Um, you know, it's hard to get to national parks and state forests, um, depending on the transportation available to you. Um, a lot of Black people in the American South don't feel safe going into outdoor spaces um, because of this history of lynching uh, and, you know, terrorism by um, white country folks. And so anyways, he, uh, he had this um, childhood where, you know, nature was not really on the menu for recreational activities. He got into a little trouble in his teens, um, spent a little time in jail. And when he came out, his cousin was just teasing him and was like, oh, so, you know, you're going to, you're going to like hike the Appalachian Trail now. And he's like, well, why not? Um, <laughs> so, you know, kind of with Esther Morris, he's, he's again got this sort of tough set of circumstances and what he chose to do with those circumstances was really remarkable um, and was also very much married to a particular landscape. I mean, what he did to, to change his life and start this mission of advocacy for black people in the outdoors. Um, you know, he hiked the Appalachian Trail and um, didn't see a lot of other people who looked like him along the way. And uh, after he did the Appalachian Trail, his next project was to bicycle uh, the route um, on the Underground Railroad that a lot of um, enslaved people uh, took to freedom and sort of followed Harriet Tubman's footsteps on a, by bicycle. So he's doing all of these remarkable things to change this narrative 
um, about what Black people can do in the outdoors and how it's very much married to the history of racism in America. I mean, um, I really wish I could remember off the top of my head, there's this um, great Black activist on Twitter uh, who noted that uh, Harriet Tubman hmm. is a hiker. Um, I think it's the founder of um, Black Girls Hike. Um, said this, but she pointed out, she was like, nobody thinks about it this way, but Harriet Tubman was hiking all the time. <laughs> um, so what I wanted to do with both of these pieces was just highlight that um, the way people interact with um, with a destination, um, the way people interact with nature, um, it's really, I mean, that's how stories unfold. And that's how you kind of get down to the heart of people. Um, you might not be able to describe what's going on in their head, especially when you're, you know, talking about, you know, real historical figures. Um, but the landscape, um, the travel destination is um, very revealing. And you might not be able to get into somebody's head, but you can literally walk in their footsteps and see how that impacts you. And you can find a lot of relatability there that um, more than you might expect. Yeah, what strikes me about, you know, the stories that you've shared so far is this idea of the fish out of water. And I wonder if, you know, at some level we all feel that we are a fish out of water to a greater or lesser degree. And that that's what, you know, that's what makes them such fascinating stories to us. Yeah. Well, and, and what you were saying earlier about, you know, being outside of your home country for so many years and having lived so many other places. Um, I had the, I had a very opposite experience. I spent a lot more time in my hometown than I ever intended to. Mm-hmm. And I didn't move away really until about three years ago. And, um, I never felt exactly at home in Chattanooga, Tennessee, or the South. Most of my family's up from up north. Um, the only, the most recent Southerners in my family besides me um, were each of my grandmothers. And um, they both went on to live quite cosmopolitan, global lives. They were big travelers. And so I never really fully related to um, a lot of Southern tropes, and I've never felt entirely um, welcome or at home in my hometown. I think that's where a lot of my interest in travel writing came from and, and just reading travel writing as a little girl and just imagining that there were other places and other possibilities and, you know, who I might be elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of travel writing is not necessarily about the place, but it's about trying to locate ourselves in the world. Yeah, it's interesting that, and I I shared with um, friends that I I feel I never truly know what it, knew what it was to be British until I left the UK, um, and then really got a sense of being able to look back on oneself and look through the eyes of another, and you know a lot of that involves stereotype, but they are there for a reason. <laughs> Um, it's funny, my first introduction to travel writing was Bill Bryson, actually, Notes from a Small Island. Um, so it was interesting in that same way to look back on the country that is your own through the eyes of, of someone else um, and, and see it that way. And it's very illuminating. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is very illuminating. And, and I think that is, um, you know, so much 
of travel writing, especially when um, at, at its most colonial, <laughs> was um, this idea of contrast and this idea that you can better understand um, sort of the imperial center point of the world by going um, to the points farthest from it. Mm. And I think that um, really dominated a lot of travel writing for, you know, centuries. Um, and then I think things did start to shift when you started to get to writers like Isabella Bird, who is still very much in that, um, you know, colonial mode and mindset. But here um, she was sending these stories back. She's, um, you know, going to these exotic places like Hawaii and the Rocky Mountains that then like a lot of people, you know, hadn't seen and weren't aware of. And she's doing it as this sort of fancy British lady with, you know, a capital L. And, and so that's sort of, you know, the places are exotic, but she's an exotic person. Um, and, and all of it's very unusual. And I think people were um, sort of amazed by that contrast with what they knew and were familiar with. And mm. that's not to say that um, there are problematic things about her narratives, but I think it's important if we're going to talk about what travel writing should be and is now um, to look back at what it's evolved out of and what impulses um, were at work there. Um, you can't really erase that. You can just learn from it. Mm, true. Um, what I would like to talk about now is just um, your process if we can. So your, what I like about your writing is that it, it strikes a balance between the historical aspects of place that we've been talking about, um, human and physical geography, and, and also kind of more contemporary things to do and see. So there are a lot of moving pieces there. How do you go about the research for your pieces and what is your process? I think a lot of the time, um, you know, Obviously, um, you know, in sort of my day-to-day -day, uh, Lonely Planet, and especially now that I've been writing for the more uh, this summer myself, um, obviously that it depends a lot on, um, you know, what we need stories on and, <laughs> and the market. But when I'm, when I'm just sitting at my desk thinking about what I want to write for myself or what stories I want to tell um, from a purely creative impulse, uh, it usually starts with, a place that I find interesting and trying to figure out what it is about that place that I can't stop thinking about. And that usually, um, you know, that'll intersect with, say, an interesting figure like Esther Morris. Um, but sometimes uh, if it's not, um, you know, so journalistic, if it's, if it's more travelogue about my own experiences, you know, I think about what is it about that place that, what did it mean to me? What did it bring out in me? Um, and, and what does it mean to the people who live there? And, and is there any tension there? Um, is there tension between this place and some aspect of my life? Um, you know, I come back to the Pacific Ocean a lot uh, in my travels and also in my writing. And I wrote a piece for Yoga Journal um, a couple years ago uh, about this concept in yoga called drishti, which is focusing on a point just beyond um, your face. And it's supposed to help you balance in poses and, and also reach this sort of meditative equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And uh, I talked about 
drishti in a larger sense and how I keep going back to the Pacific Ocean over and over again. And usually at moments of great transition in my life. And isn't that a curious thing? And so I started, I'm like, you know, when I was writing this, I'm sitting drinking this absolutely enormous sippy cup of beer at the Santa Monica Pier. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm back here at the Pacific Ocean. This keeps happening. I'm having a kind of weird time right now. Yeah. And this essay just sort of tumbled out. I knew I needed to connect it to yoga somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole thing really started with like, man, why do I keep crying publicly um, on beaches up and down California? <laughs> and um, just while trying to answer that question and figure out what it is that, that draws me to that place um, when I have something I need to work out, um, you know, that was sort of the starting point for being able to articulate this larger idea. Yeah. And I think that's um, largely how a lot of my process works is trying to understand what different places mean to us at different moments in our lives. Um, and, you know, when I'm not writing, when I'm, when I'm editing and my process there is still very similar. I'm like, okay, um, what does this place mean to somebody who isn't me, who's had a completely different set of experiences, a completely different identity? Yeah. Um, that is equally, if not more important. Um, you know, I'm just some privileged white lady. Um, <laughs> but to get stories uh, that are not from that perspective, that are similarly about um, the the tension uh, that drives us from places to other places, the um, magnetism that pulls us home. I mean, those are all worthwhile questions that get down to the heart of the human condition. Undoubtedly. Yeah. I think as well, um, you know, it, at this time more than ever in 2020 with the virus and the world being the way that it is right now, more people, I mean, we were having this conversation earlier that more people seem to be gravitating towards their families or, uh, you know, for me, um, I just bought a house um, in uh, an area that I used to hike in when I was a child. Um, and all the family seems to be converging back on that same point and it harps back to what you were saying about what does a place mean to us at a certain point of time um, and you know why why am I here now <laughs> or why do I need to be here now I think they're great questions um, so I mean I think uh, you know COVID-19 if it didn't make an appearance in this conversation, it would be remiss, really. Um, how do you think that it's impacted the way that people travel or move or perhaps even the way people more broadly write about place? Well, you know, it's been a very interesting time in the travel industry. And, um, you know, it's it's really kind of the Wild West. I mean, the editorial calendars, everybody had so planned so carefully earlier in the year are kind of shot to hell. And, um, you know, so many writers are out of work and, and we're all, well, not all of us are staying home, but, um, you know, many people are, are doing their part. And I think it's really thrown a lot of folks into thinking about, um, you know, what travel means to them. Uh, we, we just came off of, I believe, 2019 was uh, a peak year for air travel. I think the statistic was 19 million people were going to fly for Labor Day weekend alone last year. Wow. Um, and, you know, 
we had reached this point where more people than ever were traveling. Instagram has uh, made travel so much a part of our identities and um, it's a status symbol. It's um, a way of being and, and people don't just think in terms of their annual vacation anymore, but you know, there's this uh, idea that even if you only have a four-day weekend um, and, and you can take Monday off, you can you can jet off to Seoul and squeeze in a couple days um, seeing, you know, uh, you know, Phnom Penh or, um, you know, or Peru and just to see as much as you can see even in these shorter bites of time. And to have us so suddenly thrown from this peak of travel um, this uh, and, and really this trend of wanting to like live like a local and not be a tourist and to have travel be this sort of kind of permanent state of being um, to being sort of trapped in our apartments and, you know, quite literally right now trapped in the United States if you're um, an American resident. Yeah. Um, that's a huge shock to people's systems. They uh, for better or worse, have had this piece of their identity suddenly removed um, and a piece of their identity that, that they very much chose and cultivated. And I think I've seen this really lovely current of nostalgia um, that's entered a lot of travel writing. Um, my uh, good friend and very talented writer, Carrie, um, Carrie Beth Neville, um, she lives in Milledgeville, Georgia. She has written some beautiful pieces uh, for Lonely Planet, you know, filled with so much longing for, um, for Ireland um, is sort of her uh, spiritual home and, and she's had to cancel some trips there. And um, it's very much where she would like to be, I think more than Milledgeville. Um, <laughs> but she's also written really beautifully about, you know, finding a sense of happiness and belonging in Milledgeville um, during the pandemic and sort of looking at this place that she uh, previously was feeling less than charitable towards with, with fresh eyes and finding this new appreciation for, um, for her own backyard. And then, you know, some lovely pieces um, written by the woman I mentioned earlier, um, Neki Akon. She wrote so lovely about these meals that she misses and, and getting to eat, um, uh, Shuria in Nigeria, these grilled meats rolled in, in peanuts. And mm. um, I think people are kind of taking stock of this inventory of past travel experiences and um, really reveling in those memories in a new way because the focus isn't on collecting new experiences now, but um, reminiscing on the experiences you've already had and what they meant to you. And I think there's something really lovely and necessary about that to um, have that commodification um, of consumptive travel suddenly cut off. Um, it forces uh, some gratitude on you. <laughs> so important gratitude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's making people reconsider very heavily. You know, we were talking about um, people are kind of taking stock and thinking, you know, where do I need to be to ride out the rest of this pandemic? Do I need to be closer to family? Do I need to, um, do I need to be in San Francisco, this very expensive city for work? <laughs> um, yeah. or, or could I move back home um, if remote work is 
um, on offer from my employer. I, I wonder if people are going to think about travel the same way when it opens back up, if it's going to be less about um, the hottest new destination and, you know, having to see Machu Picchu like everyone else, or yeah. if it's going to be about returning to places that really um, meant something to you. I know at the top of my list, I really want to get back to the Pacific Ocean. Um, <laughs> I really want to get back to Ireland. Um, and um, I'm really heartbroken thinking about some places that are very dear to my heart that won't be the same when I return um, or where return might not be possible, like um, like Hong Kong, which is important to both of us, um, yeah. uh, especially you, and, and Portland, uh, Oregon, you know, it's been so affected by, um, you know, sort of the president's fascist <laughs> Um, <laughs> to uh, any dissent against him and by wildfires, you know, this sort of climate change induced natural disaster. Um, it's not going to be the same city I left behind. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that idea of nostalgia is important. Um, you, you emphasize the importance of um, getting back to nature, this idea in your writing. Well, what does that mean to you? I think that's really complicated. Um, I, it's so personal and it's also so political and, you know, on a personal level, um, and I've talked about this, um, a fair bit in my writing, um, you know, hiking for me has been a very healing exercise. Um, I was sexually assaulted 10 years ago and it took me a really long time to feel safe and comfortable in my body again um, and to feel safe and comfortable indulging in, um, not even indulging in, but just engaging in, um, you know, physical cardio exercise. The feeling of being out of breath felt too much like having a panic attack. Mm. I spent a lot of years being pretty sedentary um, and I started hiking again a few years ago and it was the first time that I could really enter a meditative flow state um, while exercising and being in nature um, was very healing um, and seeing the things that my body was capable of in really concrete terms like you know you start at the bottom of a mountain you end up at the top like that's a very you know um, clear accomplishment <laughs> and um, you know it gives you something really fun and exciting to do with friends and um, so you know, hiking was this very healing thing that I think saved my life in a lot of ways. And I want everybody to get to experience that, especially people who, um, you know, are members of marginalized communities that have experienced a lot of trauma. Um, I love what Black Alachian's doing. He um, is the poster child for everything that I'm talking about, you know, whether you um, are a victim of systematic racism or sexual assault or, um, you know, you've got a rough ride with mental illness, whatever you have going on. Um, I think time in nature, it's been scientifically proven that it can be, um, you know, a really effective tool for managing um, everything from anxiety to PTSD. And um, it really frustrates me that that that's not more accessible um, to people. Um, but at the same time, I think it's absolutely necessary to recognize that, you know, especially in the United States um, and Canada, I mean, really throughout North America, uh, what we think of as public lands um, were stolen from indigenous people. And um, indigenous people have so little access to their own sacred spaces. Um, and 
so I'm constantly torn, especially in outdoor writing. How do I convey um, how personally meaningful engaging with outdoor spaces has been without asserting ownership over a particular trail or a particular park system or a particular mountain I might have a relationship with um, when I'm a white colonizer. I'm not living in the place my ancestors came from. Yeah. And, um, you know, especially in the southeastern United States where I came from, um, the Cherokee people who were here originally are long gone. Um, you know, their descendants are living in Oklahoma um, and elsewhere. And um, the path to restitution um, is not clear cut. Yeah. And so it's really complicated. Um, talking about um, travel and, and the outdoors, um, when it can have such a huge personal impact and you acknowledge the enormous and traumatic cost that that's come at. And that's yeah. a hard thing to reconcile. Um, but I think that if we're open to admitting that and talking about it, um, maybe we can sort of claw our way to a solution over time. Yeah, and that, that kind of goes nicely back to that idea of tension that you brought up before, you know, this kind of personal tension between um, an experience that's so healing to so many, to get out in nature, to have, have the brainwaves soothed by the greenery, um, but also to acknowledge the history of, of the ownership of that land and the power struggles involved in it. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, and, yeah. You know, I, I see like so much of uh, really good outdoor writing right now. I think, um, you know, it's it's hard to get that placed in traditional outlets like, um, you know, there's Outside Magazine, there's Backcountry Magazine. Um, but, you know, there's a shrinking media landscape. There's fewer and fewer opportunities for people to share, um, you know, long personal essays about um, their meaningful experiences in the outdoors. And so social media has been... <laughs> A really big tool for people to communicate um, what the outdoors means to them and um, you know I have some mixed feelings about the rise of influencers um, in our media landscape but you know look at folks like you know uh, Brianna Media gets um, you know a mixture of um, you know a lot of uh, you know she's got a lot of fans um, and also a lot of detractors because she writes so beautifully um, about the desert and um, what it means to her to, ex to exist in that place. Um, and some of her critics say she doesn't do enough to acknowledge um, sort of this larger history of why the desert is even available to her at all. Um, yeah. And then on the flip side, you see people like, uh, there's this photographer, Abby Hearn, and she and her husband do these really gorgeous engagement shoots, um, you know, in the Moab desert. And they also go up to Alaska every year and take these really lovely pictures of brides in these white dresses on glaciers. And it's all, um, you know, very mystical and, and lovely. And, you know, she does so much to highlight, you know, she personally really loves these glaciers, but they're disappearing. And in a few years, nobody's going to be able to see these like really magical, you know, ice caves and these like slot canyons through glaciers that um, she does. And I love that she's out there talking about loving these glaciers because the glaciers need an advocate and who better to talk about why they're important. Um, you know, scientists do great work that's so necessary. Um, and then we need humanities people to convey um, in less clinical terms, um, what's at stake? Yeah, 
why they matter. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and on a personal level, um, that, you know, there's, there's grief at work. It's not just, you know, temperature statistics um, or, you know, number of feet receded per year, but um, here is somebody whose career and marriage and, and personal, um, you know, thoughts and feelings are very tied up in, you know, certain Alaskan glaciers. And that's something this person's not going to be able to return to eventually. Um, that's a relationship that is endangered. Um, in a very real sense, the relationship that you can have to a place that might not be there anymore. I mean, you know, like Hong Kong, um, now that the law has passed or, um, you know, the experience of refugees who, you know, there's all of this lovely diaspora, uh, diasporatic writing that's taken place over the centuries, you know, um, yeah. and that longing for a place you can't return to, um. It's a whole other awful kind of tension. Yeah, and so relevant to everything that's going on in the world today. And um, this idea of you know, action that needs to be taken to conserve the places that we love and the environment that we, that we love so much. Yeah, yeah. and I think, it's, I think it's easy to, to feel a little doom and gloom, um, you know, and uh, especially when you're trying to spur people to action. But I saw somebody write something really lovely recently that, that hope is a muscle and you need to exercise it. And I think travel writing can do a lot to make us feel hopeful. I mean, you know, I talk about all this writing from the diaspora and I, I don't think that people necessarily think of that as travel writing necessarily. But, you know, in college, I spent some time um, in Yarnton outside of Oxford. Um, I spent several summers in a row there. And um, on one occasion, I was sort of doing administrative work for this group of um, Jewish scholars who uh, were looking at poetry from the like medieval Jewish diaspora. And there were all of these lovely poems about like yearning for Jerusalem and yearning for mm. the land of milk and honey. And um, this place, I mean, these people were writing about a place they'd never seen that their grandparents had never seen. They're, they're sitting in Spain, um, hoping there won't be uh, an inquisition. And, um, you know, hoping that they can just be left alone for a little while. Um, and they're writing so fervently in such great detail about the geography of this place that, you know, they can only hope to maybe visit like once before they die. And, um, that's incredible. I, I think that's travel writing too, you know, even yeah. if, even if it doesn't meet the standards of the day, even if you haven't been there, it's still about place. Yeah. Definitely. I think that's a nice place to wrap up on that, that, hope, that um, note of hope. It's very important. <laughs> so where can our listeners see more of your work? Obviously, I'll, I'll share links to the, um, you know, the, the, the pieces that we've discussed during this, this interview so that people can familiarize themselves. But um, yeah, where can they go? Um, so, uh, a lot of my writing uh, effort lately has been for uh, Lonely Planet, and um, that's been really lovely and a total dream come true. Um, and I've also been doing a lot of outdoor writing for uh, this small uh, indie publication called Sisu Magazine, um, S-I-S-U, and they have a very lovely focus on women and um, you know BPOC and um, marginalized 
uh, folks getting to write about their experiences in the outdoors. Um, so I've written um, about, let's see now, women's equity in surfing and um, the debate over geotagging. And uh, in the most recent issue, I got to write um, a, something a little outside my usual wheelhouse, a delightfully raunchy piece about um, sex in the outdoors. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that one will draw some people in, I'm sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So um, I'll share some links so people can check those out. But um, thanks so much for taking the time out to talk. Yes. Today. Thank you. It's so lovely uh, always being in conversation with you. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you. 